Galatians 4 is where we are at. And uh, we can stand together and, and our main text is chapter 4 and um, might make it through verse 12. Maybe. We're going to uh, read back from chapter 3 verse 19 though. So that we get kind of some context. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For there, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness could have been or would have been by the law. But the scripture is confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ and that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. We'll stop there in verse 11. And Lord, we come before your word already, just having the tone of our heart set to the good news of this text. And we just pray that the spirit of the living God would fall afresh on us this morning in this place, that that you would blow through the caverns of our heart and Lord, that you would just awaken us to who you are as just omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign God. A God that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, let us know that God today. 
more than an intellectual knowledge, Lord, let us experience that God. Let us tangibly know and feel and experience his love. And we pray that by your grace, even if today in this room there would be those who would come to believe in you for the first time, oh Lord, that they would have everlasting life starting today. We give it to you this time in the word. We bow our hearts to its authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. The book of Galatians has been shoring up the foundations of our theology concerning the grace of God. Grace meaning gift, the gift of God. The gift of God to anyone who would believe in him. The gift of righteousness or innocence or rightness given to you and put into your account while your sin and rebellion and failures are put into Jesus' account. It's the grace of not only being forgiven, but being called innocent and being called righteous, as if you now had something in your accounts. You are full of riches now because of Christ Jesus. The gospel of grace is that you've been given the spirit of the living God to dwell in you and to change you and to empower you to live for him and to know him and and to be empowered with boldness to go and tell people about him. But as John Stott says, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. Not an invitation to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. It's not a demand, but an offer. So even as we go through this text and we're told to set aside our own self-righteousness, anything that we think gives us any merit, we would come and lay it down and say, Lord, we are spiritually bankrupt people. I got nothing. I need you to come. I need you to change me. And of course, as you look at the golden chain of salvation, as we studied in our core group this week, God is at the beginning of even that. Believe it or not, he has predestined us. Believe it or not, he has called us. Believe it or not, he has justified us, calling us righteous as the judge of the universe because of his son, Jesus. And he's now sanctifying us, which means he's setting us apart of the world and the old man and the old you. And day by day by day, by the work of the Spirit of God, he is making you a new person. Oh yeah, you've been made a new person, and he's making you a new person, and one day, you'll be a new person. And in that, the golden chain ends with, he's also glorified you. He's also glorified. And so the gospel is, as we hear these wonderful tones of grace and redemption and salvation, it's not a call to heed advice from Galatians. No, it's good news about Jesus. It's not an invitation for you to muster up anything today. It's a call to rest, to collapse And to take upon you the strength of the Lord Jesus. 
There's no demands in the book of Galatians. There's only offers. Offers of the grace and the riches and the beauty of Christ Jesus. We saw in chapter 3 Wednesday night, we read it, that once we were in jail, what purpose has the law? If the promise comes through Abraham and the, and the, the wonderful example of Abraham having been declared righteous by believing on the Lord, then why did 430 years later, God give us the law. I mean, surely wasn't that just a little hint to us that, yeah, you start by faith, but then you just keep on really mustering up, you know, some, some strength for following Jesus and, you know, you kind of earn some favor with him. I mean, at least that's what the Mosaic law was about. Or, or seriously, Paul, what was the purpose of the law then? The Ten Commandments plus another 603 commandments, 613 commandments. I mean, surely they had a point. God was telling us to earn our way, man. And, and Paul says in what we read this morning, no, the, the purpose of the law was that we were confined under sin because of it. You see, before we knew the good news of the promise to Abraham that if you would believe on him, you would be counted as righteous, before we even know that that's a good thing, we got to know that there's a whole bunch of bad things. The good news has got to come after the bad news. And the 613 commandments are the bad news that tell you, you messed up royally. You have blown it in every imaginable way possible. And if you didn't do it, on the outside in your actions, and you've done it on the inside in your heart. And so the purpose of Deuteronomy, and the latter chapters of Exodus, and Leviticus, and all of those law books, the purpose is to show you that you are in a jail of sin. So that the key of the promise in Christ Jesus can unlock you and release you and let you out. He says in the passage we read in Galatians chapter 3 this morning, that not only were we in jail by the law, but the law was also the jailer. Holding the six-shooter at us, saying, you ain't going anywhere. But again, Jesus is the key. We read at the latter part of chapter 3 that the law was a tutor. A harsh tutor at that a tutor to bring us to Christ. And I just have always loved that imagery. I don't know why, but my mind goes to Mickey Mouse and the Prince and the Pauper. And you know, and, and you got one Mickey, there's two Mickeys actually. One's the poor one and one's the rich prince. And do you remember the, do you remember the tutor, the schoolmaster over, you know, the guardian over the prince, the, the cow guy, or maybe as a horse? I never could figure out what that thing was. I guess he's got like a yoke on its neck thing. Anyways, that's where my mind goes. The law was that harsh schoolmaster, the tutor with the ruler slapping your hands, the teacher with the red pen, that every time you'd mess up, he'd circle, he'd mark, he'd check mark, he'd cross out, he'd leave his little comments and he'd show you, you got an F plus. You failed. If you can get an F minus, it was technically an F minus. Got to take it all over again. That's what the tutor of the law is. When you look into the perfect law of liberty, you you, you see that, that there was another law. 
And it was a law that confined you, jailed you, kept you captive, and showed you that you could never do it on your own. And chapter 3 said, so that we might be justified by faith. Now the good news is, is that after faith has come, we are no longer under that tutor anymore. And it switches to another relationship. From going to a, a kid who's underneath a teacher or a harsh schoolmaster to actually being like graduated and being a son and being an heir and at the foot of Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or you're fat or you're skinny or you're rich or you're poor or you're black or you're white, no matter what, at the foot of the cross, as we are sons and daughters of God, man, there is equal grace and blessing for us. If you are in Christ, then you are with him. And you are an heir, verse 29 of chapter 3 says. You are an heir now according to the promise. And it's, you know, the chapter breaks in Galatians are tough ones. Because, I mean, it's, it's hard to find your picking point of where you're going to start preaching on a Sunday. And so, uh, if you were here Wednesday night, you know we taught on all that. But now we see verse 1 continues this idea of coming out of the jail, coming out from under the jail master of the law of Moses, because Jesus the key has set us free. We're, we're taken out from underneath the school marm, you know, and we're, we're graduated and we're, we've got a profession now. We, we've, we're sons and we've become heirs. And Paul begins chapter 4 with that picture Verse 1, now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So this picture is of this, this son who was at a youthful age and was under that tutor, and it's just a frustrating place. He's got senioritis, and you all remember senioritis. Some of you are seniors here. I mean, you're just ready to go spread your wings and fly. But the law wouldn't allow it. The law said, nope, there's no freedom for you. You've sinned and it's death. Sin brings death. As a young heir under the, the taskmaster of the law, we didn't have the freedom of the one who had graduated. We were controlled and watched over by a guardian you remember those days because we'd all have been there in some capacity. We had chores and studies and curfews and rules until the day of graduation or the day of promotion. If you're Jewish, it's the day of your bar mitzvah. It's a wonderful day. Partying and speeches and accordions, I think. Verse 3 says, though, even so, when we were children... We were in bondage under the elements of the world. And so before the graduation day, before the day of advancement, before the day of promotion, before the bar mitzvah day, there was a time when we too were without freedom. We were under the law and so we were in bondage and enslaved and subservient. We were under obligation. We were under the elements of the world and the world systems. But verse 4 brings such a light dawning on the text when there's the word but that says, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
the, the phrase starts out with verse 4. And so we have one of the texts that's just one of my favorites for a Christmas message, believe it or not. Because it really tells the Christmas story. It tells kind of that wonderful moment where the rescue plan is so evident when Jesus comes into the scene. But he comes onto the scene at the fullness of the time. When the fullness of the time had come. So you kind of got to go back and think about the jail and the jailers and the tutors. And you're this child that's just under bondage. The elements of the world, they've just, they're holding you down in the mire and the quicksand of sin and death. There's no freedom. There's no hope. The tutor has shown you that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then there was this perfect moment. The day dawned at the fullness of the time. At that fullness of the time, God sent, and I think it's King James Version where it says, God sent forth from heaven. He sent him forth his own son. The Greek translates it, he sent forth out of heaven from himself. It's the same verb that's used of the Father sending the Holy Spirit. But pre-spirit, it was sending forth the Son. And you might underline that God sent forth, and make a note, his own Son. It's important that we realize that God sent out of heaven from himself, it shows that Jesus had a previous state. That the gospel of John and the epistles explaining it are so true that Jesus is God. He is deity. He's the creator. There's one God and three persons within the Godhead. Jesus being one of them with the Father and the Spirit. Paul's making sure that we know that Jesus was sent to live the perfect life. To live a life that no man has ever lived. And so Jesus came to live the life, not ceasing to be what he was, which was God, yet he became what he was not, which was man. John chapter 1 really wonderfully tells us how that happened. But he was born of a woman, it says in Galatians 4. The sent son was born. He was born of the seed of David, Romans 1 tells us, according to the flesh. Born of a woman. As J.B. Phillips says, he was born of a human mother. Estius says, the expression implies a special tangent of God in his birth as man Namely, causing him to be conceived by the Holy Ghost. Fully God, fully man. The hymn says, down the birth canal comes the incarnate deity, God wrapped in flesh. How did that happen? Luke chapter 1 tells us in verse 35, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the power of the highest overshadowed her. And she was with child. As fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Where wicked king Ahaz was told to ask for a sign. That so God could prove himself to him. And Ahaz was in such a rebellious 
state, he said, I'm not asking for nothing. And the Lord says, even though you're not asking for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. It was the Bill Ingvill joke before, you know, Ingvill made it popular. Here's your sign, you know, and God says, here's your sign to show that I am God and that I'm in control and that I'm working here. Here's the sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. And so it's important, as Paul says, that at the right time, at the crescendo of human history, God sent forth his son. He was born of a woman in fulfillment of the prophecy about that son in Isaiah chapter 7, born of a virgin. And Luther says that, that Paul has in mind the virgin is obvious. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah that the scriptures pointed to. But to show the context of what Paul's getting into in this wonderful light of the text, it says that this son who was born of a woman was born under that law. He was born under the law that would have been his jail. It would have been his jailer. It would have been his tutor, his taskmaster. The son was born a Jew into a Jewish family. That means that Jesus, when he was born, was subject to the law just like everybody else. And so as we see our context of Galatians so far, we've got Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. He's the receiver of the promise. He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He would be the father of the faith, the father of many sons. Through Abraham, all the nations, all the families, all the peoples of the world would be blessed. We have the mountain, if you will, of Abraham. And we also have the mountain of Moses, if you will. The mountain of Moses that, that condemns us and confines us and shows us that we're all sin. We're all sinning. And not only that, our sinful flesh takes that mountain of the law, and even though it's a good mountain, we use it as a launching pad for other sins. Romans chapter 7 says that. Oh man, that mountain of Moses, the mountain of the law, it is a good mountain. But because I am so wicked, my flesh just uses that good mountain, and I just sin even more. Read Romans chapter 7. That's what it speaks about. The law is good and holy and just and good, but me not so much. And so I use that as just an aircraft carrier for just more sin, more sin. The law provokes me to wrath. Do not walk on the grass. I'm walking on the grass. No fishing. Ha ha! You know, in a sense, that's what the law does. Heaping up upon us more and more sin. Our flesh doing that because of its wickedness. So you've got these two mountains, but there's an Everest in between them. And his name is Jesus. Just like at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is there and he shines in all of his glory. Who's standing next to him? You've got the promise of Abraham. You've got the promise of Elijah, rather, who's the, a fullness of the prophets. A picture of the prophets. You've got Moses, a picture of the law. But who's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? It's Jesus, the mountain in the middle, the Everest. 
last year, because of Nepal and then the movie Everest came out, started reading Edmund Hillary's account of, his, of the first hiking and climbing and figuring out Mount Everest. And he writes about climbing, going through the mountains and taking the trails and finding his way towards Everest. And he'd never seen Everest before. He's wondering where we're going to get there, you know. And he walked around a corner and there's Mount Everest. And you can just almost hear him gulp when you're reading the books. And he says, man, all of the mountains in the Himalayas, and a lot of us know this now, but they are just like giant and breathtaking. But when you come to Mount Everest, they don't even come up to his shoulders. And he he speaks of Mount Everest as if he's a king of all kings. And that ministered to me. It's a picture of Jesus. You've got the mountain of Abraham. You've got the mountain of Moses. But you've got the king of kings who is the promise of Abraham. He is the seed. And he has fulfilled the law. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mount, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill them. I came to keep it all. God sent me at just the right time. I was born of a woman. She was a virgin, like the prophet said. I was born under the law, subject to the law, but I didn't come to wipe it all out and start fresh. I came to fulfill it all. So that you, through believing in me, it's just like you fulfilled it all. I'm going to keep it all ceremonially, ceremonially, morally, and perfectly for your good, for my glory. Because of that, Jesus became the representative man. He came and suffered the whole penalty for our race's blunder. Why did God send forth his son from himself to be born of a woman, to be born of a virgin, to be born under the law, subject to the law? The text goes on today that he might redeem those who are under the law. Jesus is the promise of Abraham. He's the promise that will get us out of the jail cell of the law. He'll knock the law, the jailer, in the back of the head and so that we can get out of there. The tutor retires and we graduate because of Jesus. That we might be redeemed. And the word redeemed speaks of purchasing purchasing us and the wonderful language speaks of being purchased off an auction block you hear me say that all the time just because it it's just been seared into my heart that we who are slaves of sin and death have been purchased off of that auction block of slavery we've been ransomed by the blood of jesus the word of god says that we weren't purchased with corruptible things like gold or silver, or even with things like the blood of bulls and goats, but we've been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus as if a lamb without spot or any blemish. How wonderful is it that the incarnate Son has purchased our redemption. And when did he do it? Going back to the beginning of verse 4, when the fullness of the time had come. When the complete end of the time had come. One man wrote, when history reached a crescendo, 
or when God's plan had crested, it was at that precise moment. I was a band kid, saxophone, as if you couldn't tell. Got a little jazz in me. No. But as band kids, man, you learn to read music. You, you see that there's rests and there's, you know, holds and pauses and all this stuff. And D.C. Alcoda and blah, 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 right? It's been about 20 years, I think, actually. So, But, you know, in band and in, in music, there's a crescendo where it starts out pianissimo. Okay. What, what was it? Fortissimo. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you start out pianissimo, right? It's really quiet. It's like Abraham, the promise. It's like, okay, we're, we're down here right now. And then throughout the Old Testament and the, and the prophets and the law and, and all of that. And then it just comes to this point in world history where it's forte. It's loud. It's the right time. And that is when Jesus came. It all had been leading up to that point. He came at just the right time in God's redemptive plan. It was when the world was perfectly prepared for God's work. It was a divine appointment, as my mom always says. I had a divine appointment today. Well, this was God's divine appointment. Prophetically, oh man, when you study Bible prophecy, it was the the right time, the crescendo of the time, the crest of the time, when you read Daniel 9 and it prophesies the day that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was prophesied. Boom, it was the right time. There's no one else that could do that but God. And his control, and his foreknowledge, and his seeing the end from the beginning, he says, now! 33 AD, boom! Just the right time. Prophetically, it was the right time. Historically, it was the right time. Jesus came right in that intertestamental period. The prophets hadn't been speaking for 400 years. It'd been quiet. You could hear a pin drop. Nothing was happening. Little grandkids were starting to ask their grandpa, kind of quiet around here grandpa will the one whom the prophets spoke of come it's been 400 years what's going on and grandpa says he'll be here any moment he'll be here any moment it was at just the right time i love what brown says had christ come directly after the fall back in genesis chapter 3 the enormity and deadly fruits of sin would not have been realized fully by man. So as to feel his desperate state and his need for a savior, sin was fully developed at that fullness of the time. Man's inability to save himself by obedience to the law, whether that of Moses or even their own conscience, was completely manifested. At that crescendo when Jesus came, man, it was clear we can't do this on our own. By various arrangements in the social and political, Brown goes on to say, as well as the moral world, had fully prepared the way for the coming Redeemer. God often permits physical evil long before he teaches the remedy. The smallpox had for long committed its ravages before inoculation. And then vaccination was discovered. It was essential 
to the honor of God's law to permit evil long before he revealed the full remedy. It was at just the right time where man had really realized their desperate state. The Roman occupation that was happening when Jesus came shows that it was the right time. It was a time when the Pax Romana extended over most of the civilized world. And all roads were made to go to Rome and to spread out from Rome so that the gospel could advance swiftly. There was clarity in that the Greek language was becoming universal. So that the gospel could go forth in the language that men could understand. It was the fullness of the time. James Montgomery Boyce says, add the fact that the world was sunk in a moral abyss so low that even the pagan cried out against it and that spiritual hunger was everywhere evident and one has a perfect time for the coming of Christ and for the early expansion of the Christian gospel. Even the pagans were recognizing that their mythological deities were empty, were nothing. And they wondered if there was any truth or any hope. And Paul was able to go with his disciples and preach to them that the the time had come. The perfect time was as Galatians 4.3 says, it was when we, when we were children and when we were in bondage as those slaves under the elements of the world. You know, the good news that we've been worshiping about so much is that we're no longer slaves, but now we're sons. And if sons, then we're heirs. But the truth is that the whole world, they're not children of God. We like to say that. It's kind of an Oprah thing or something like that. Like, you're all children of God. No, we're all created by God. But it's only those who've been adopted that are the children. Those who are adopted are the children. Ephesians 1 says that everyone else outside of Christ, they are children, but they are children of wrath. Destined for wrath because of sin and rebellion. Now the good news is, is that Jesus has made a way to be saved from that status. And he did it in the perfect time. As Romans 5 says, it was when we were still without strength. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 5, to redeem us who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Giving himself as a ransom for all. That we might receive the adoption, it shows that there was a purpose behind it all. John chapter 1 verse 9 says, That Jesus, who is the true light of the world, came, but his own did not know him. He came to his own people, but they did not receive him. And verse 12 of John chapter 1 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. How do you become adopted? How do you become children? By the promise of Abraham. Through Jesus. Faith in his name. 
But verse 13 of John chapter 1 goes on to say, those who are born, born again, adopted in, aren't born because of blood or of the will of the flesh. I just really want to be adopted into God's family today. No, they were born by the will of God. Born by the will of God. You still need to receive, still need to believe, still need to trust. But he is the one that moves us there. He is the one that beckons us. He is the one that has pursued us. While we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Augustine says, herein God makes the sons of men sons of God, inasmuch as God made of the Son of God the Son of Man. It's a miracle. It's a work of the Spirit. And so is our adoption. It's a miracle. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, not a work of our flesh. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Those of you who come to this place today and you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, take wonderful solace today in this immediate phrase, you are sons today. There is assurance for you today. As you come into the wonderful rest of the Lord Jesus, you are sons. God has shown you that you are sons by sending forth the Spirit into your hearts. 2 Corinthians and Ephesians tell us that the Spirit has sealed us as a guarantee of our hope and salvation. There's a guarantee stamped on you driving behind a Les Schwab truck. Might have been Tim the other day. And it says something like, everything we sell comes with a guarantee or something like that. You, you know it more than I do. You Prineville people. I guarantee it, old Les would say. And it's the same with our salvation. The Holy Spirit alongside us, convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment. We're convicted by the Holy Spirit believing on his name, receiving the salvation, the hope, the life in Jesus. Being born again, given a new heart, a new mind that can beat now, that can know God. The sending of the Spirit is part of the promise of Abraham. It's a work of God's grace on those who would believe. And he doesn't only just come in us, but he seals us as a guarantee of our salvation. We've received the spirit of adoption. And it's by that that we cry out to him, Abba, Father. It's the, it's the same as Daddy in the English language. Going to Israel, I remember being on the beach uh, in Tel Aviv, our first day in uh, Israel back in 2012, and a dad and his son were playing soccer on the beach. And it was just a little guy, probably, oh, probably four years old. And as they're kicking the ball back and forth, just hearing that little boy just yelling out, Abba, Abba. So cool. I'm like, I know what that means. I don't know much, but I know what that means. Father, daddy. And as I was sitting downstairs at my house and studying the text today, just thinking of how deeply intimate 
our redemption in Christ Jesus is. It's so sweet and so close that now we are part of this family adopted in and he's our dad. You know, I've never been a big fan of prayer meetings um, where someone's, instead of, you know, saying Lord or Father, you know, someone's throwing out a daddy, you know, and, and I've just been critical of that. But in my office downstairs at my house this week, just the Lord caused me to appreciate those heart cries from men and women in churches that I've just been sinfully critical of. That that's where the Lord wants us to be. Calling him daddy, calling him father. And as I was just being ministered to by the Lord in my office this week, my mind went to my relationship with my dad. Always so close with my dad. Just my hero and Man, I just remembered sitting in the rocking chair with him. It was a big lazy boy. And I still have that chair in my basement now. And I just go sit in that. And I just remember my dad and my dad rocking me in that close relationship. We, I have a picture in my house of the last year that I was with my dad. I was 18 years old and he was about 46. And I have a picture of uh, my dad and I just squeezing each other. And even as an 18-year-old, I just kiss him on the cheek. And I just love, love my dad. No shame and a big old kiss to dad. And then I was just thinking of my own kids. My own kids. Right now, Titus, Titus is a daddy's boy. I mean, just, man, he is my boy. And he just sees me and his eyes light up and he just has to run to me as fast as he can, but he can't run right now. He's just kind of a, you know, and I'm just like, bring it. Come on. And he, you know, right now he's just got his pacifier in. We call it a patty. And he's got this thing covering half of his face, but you can still see his eyes light up. And you can see his smile, you know, beyond the patty. And Lainey, my laner girl, you know, just running up to me and just, man, she's got to be held by me. She's got to be in my arms. Just Russell, you know, he's growing into a young man, but he's my boy. Playing out there on the soccer field yesterday, scoring two goals, just as his coach and as his dad, just, oh, my boy, my oldest. Those of you that have kids, you know, I mean, you just can't even express it enough. Just, my kids, just, Titus, I just think of Titus right now, and I, um, he's just, you know, baby, toddler, and you know, I'll just, it might be weird, I don't know, I'll just lean my cheek against his, his forehead right here, and I'll just, million kisses. Just million, just, you know, and he loves it. And he just kind of burrows his head in there, you know, and, and man, if we could just get that that is what the Lord has made available to us by grace and what he did to make that happen, man, it was a rescue mission that the best novelist, the best Hollywood movie writer, he couldn't even think that up. He came and suffered and died after living the perfect life. Beckoning us and drawing us and pursuing us and calling us and choosing us. Moving us. Granting to us repentance, as the New Testament says. That we might have that million kisses on the forehead by him. That we might learn not to fear because we can be cradled in his bosom. 
And not only have we been adopted, we've been taken off of that slavery block. Verse 7 says, we're, we're no longer a slave. Man, I didn't want to overdo the song today, you know. We're saying no longer a slave like a thousand times lately, Rory. I knew you were going to do that one. It has the language, no longer a slave. What was I supposed to pick? Kumbaya? You're no longer a slave. No longer in bondage. No longer in chains. But you're a son. You're a daughter of God in Christ Jesus. And man, and then if you're a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. Man, I have in my notes, slave, this order here, slave, and then an arrow, to son. And then an arrow. It, it gets better than son? It does. It really does. Heir of God. Through, the arrow keeps going. It doesn't happen on your own. It doesn't happen by listening to the advice of the gospel. It's not advice. It's a call. Come to Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. From slave, which is doulos, to son, which is hulos, to heir, which is karanamos in the Greek. It means a receiver. You're just a receiver of the grace of God through Christ Jesus. On the behalf of Christ Jesus, because of Christ Jesus, on account of Christ Jesus. I was going to say, as we have the worship team come back up, but I guess so. There's two guys that can come on up. Come on up, guys. As we just set our things aside today, there are three groups of people kind of in our camp of our text today. The first, you know what? You need the law preached to you. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that you'd find salvation in the law. But you think that you are so righteous and so holy and so successful and so perfect that just God is going to just open up the shiny gates of heaven when you get there and let you in because, man, you are just, ow, polished, beautiful. And the law needs to be preached to you today so that you could be confined under sin and see that you are a wretch. You need the tutor with the red pen to just go through your life and just you've just blown it. And maybe you're not the Roman one individual with the list of just every heinous sin that's been known to man just dripping off of you. But then you're the Romans 2 guy. The self-righteous religious person that has all those sins going on in your heart. And you might not even know it today. And the law needs to be laid before you to show you you've had other gods before Jesus. Maybe even just yourself. You haven't revered time spent with God, keeping that time holy. And you have been covetous in your heart, just wanting the next thing. You get that thing, you want the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. There's no contentment in Christ. 
And your covetous needs leads to you stealing things. You've been lustful in your heart, committing adultery in your heart, if not full-on committing adultery out in this community. You've had anger and hatred and bitterness just welling up inside of you. And Jesus says that is the same thing as murdering. That's like four laws right there. We don't have time to go through 613 right now. But I guarantee, as a bunch of Gentiles, we've fallen short. (laughs) The law needs to be shown to you so that you'll see that Jesus came to fulfill that for you. If you would trust in him, he would look upon you just as if you'd never sinned and as if you'd kept every one of those laws. The second group of people are the people that have had the law preached to them. And you try to keep every jot and every tittle of it, not realizing that that was done in Jesus. And you're trying to keep the law and observe all of these things and you've put a yoke upon yourself that neither you nor anyone who's gone before you has been able to keep. And we all know those people, we all know you. You come into a room and you just suck the joy out of it. Because you're putting a law on people that we can never keep anyways. And you need to know, It was kept in Jesus. So rest in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. He will cleanse you and look on you truly as if you'd never sinned. Rest in Jesus. And the joy of the Lord will cause you to want to walk in obedience and to walk in giant steps of faith. Not to appease God, but to please God. As, a, as an act of worship and love towards God. And as we just move to prayer, our prayer today, Calvary Chapel, is that you would allow the Holy Spirit to just show you where you're at on the slave son scale. Have you come to Jesus? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Have you rested in his wonderful works of righteousness, including the death of himself on the cross, that you might be saved? That you might be saved today. Are you overwhelmed with the heavy burden on your back? Are you overwhelmed with the heavy chains upon your wrists of bondage, of trying to do it on your own? Do you hear the Savior say, you've got no strength. Come to me. I'll take that heavy burden off your back. I'll clothe you in white robes of righteousness. I'll take your heart of wickedness out and put in a new heart a wonderfully soft heart that now pumps and beats and is alive and knows me we just respond to the Lord Jesus today as we close in worship